name is Joe. Hi, I'm going to steal that ashtray. No, no, no. None of that stuff. That stuff won't sell, for God's sake. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for the privilege of, of being here in Beaumont. Uh, and I don't want to really pick up on the fact that he said I am controversial, uh, but I probably will. Uh, I, I'm an alcoholic. You're, you're this, this habit you folks have down here in Texas of, of starting out with your sobriety date and all, that's, that's not a practice that we do so much in the, in the uh, Southern California area, but I like it. I like it. Uh, and in, in keeping with that, I'd like to say that I have been uninterruptedly dry since the 21st of December, 1952. Right? Now, in, in that period of dryness, there have been spasms of sobriety. Okay? So, probably today, I know, I hope that I, that I will dwell on some of the spasmodic sobriety because every time one of these spasms of sobriety happened it was because I got off my duff and started doing something about me. Uh, I, I'm uh, I'm not an authority on Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I am an authority on Joe Quinn and part Joe Q. You know. um, I also believe uh, when they read the, the preamble it says uh, we are gathered together to solve our common problem, you know, and not everybody who comes into meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, has a problem with cocaine or uh, pills or grass or speed or uppers or inners or downers or outers or whatever. But we assume that everybody that comes into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous has some kind of a problem with alcohol. And all I know is alcohol. If you've got a problem with alcohol and there's probably a lot of people around who also have the same kind of a problem with alcohol and, go to them and find out what in the hell are you doing about your and problem. <laughs> I can tell you what I did about my booze problem. You know, uh, I didn't even think I had a problem with booze when I got here. I'm one of these characters who I, I, I'm, I get very much disturbed at uh, speakers who talk ad nauseum about what they used to be like and what they used to be like and what they used to be like. And all of a sudden they look at the clock and they got five minutes to go. They said, when I came down, all his numbers and I got sober and they sit down and the newcomer's mouth drops wide open. Yeah, he was a drunk, but what the hell did he do about it? And I believe that's the only thing I'm ever supposed to talk about. I think I'm supposed to qualify myself as a drunk and as, as quickly as I know and get off it. I think the important thing I am supposed to talk about, and I try to talk about, is what happened. Uh, and I think that's the simplest way I ever found out, and if any of you were the kind of a drunk I was, you'll identify. Two drinks and I was out of debt, four drinks and I'm loaning money. <laughs> that's, that was me as a drunk, you know. I drank anything that was too thin to chew. I drank it because... Because it did something for me that it didn't do for other people. I'm a 130-pound Irishman soaking wet. But when I had that booze in me, I could see this magic transformation. Looking in those blue mirrors in the back of the bar, I immediately gained six inches in height, 40 pounds in weight, or 50 pounds in weight, shoulders like a ram's forward line, 
wave in my hair, cleft chin, dimples, gleam in my eye, and ideas. And then I have a few of these drinks, and I look up and down the bar, and which of these lovers am I going to ping the great queen personality on? Then I had a few more drinks, and I'd finally say, out of hell with it. And it wasn't until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I found out why I said, out of hell with it. When I was drinking, when I got mentally ready, I wasn't able. So rather, rather than risk failure or rejection, I never even made a move. I stayed there, and after sitting at the bar, I was the greatest, and then whatever adjective you want to put after that, singer, fighter, lover, dancer, whatever, sitting on that bar stool. Uh, unfortunately, you always run into some slob wanting to say, prove it. And I get up off of the bar stool and fall flat on my face. I, I mean, my proving ratio wasn't too good. Uh, I loved everything about alcohol. I loved the taste of it. I loved the smell of it. But when I went wandering into my first AA meeting in Los Angeles in 1951, I didn't go in there with the idea of getting sober. See, I had run out of people. I was a kind of a drunk. If you saw me out in the bar, I manipulated people. I was like a master puppeteer pulling people's strings. And if I pull their string and they're supposed to go beep, and they went beep, I kept their string. But if they were supposed to go beep, and they went beep, I cut their string. You know, I was cutting strings all over the place until I woke up at the age of 29 in a doorway on East Fifth Street in Los Angeles with a handful of loose strings and nothing else. I had run out of people. I'd run out of my, I'd run out of, I, I was afraid I was running out of my mind. Um, I was, I thought everybody that drank, drank like me. Everybody was a gulper. I didn't understand sippers. I still don't. Uh, but if there's anybody here who figures they sip their way in and stick around, I'm not the authority, you know. Uh, I, I, when I came in Alcoholics Anonymous, I heard these people talk about they found out they had a problem with alcohol when they discovered the morning drink. I looked at them like they were out of their mind. I always had the morning drink. That was where they got started, you know. That's what got everything in motion. Uh, my father, who was my role model, you know, he always started out the day with a quick double hooker and then he was off to work. Uh, of course, that's all he drank was a couple of belts and he would go. And he'd come home and have a couple of belts and he'd go to bed. Me, I have a couple of belts and that just started the whole damn wheels in motion. And I love what it did for me. I've got four brothers and two sisters back in the city of Philadelphia, and none of them are alcoholic. Some of them were heavy drinkers, but none of them would classify as an alcoholic. Uh, I didn't think there was anything wrong with getting drunk in Philadelphia and waking up in Boston, <laughs> or Baltimore, or Pittsburgh, or Washington, or underneath the boardwalk in Atlantic City. I figured that was what was meant by having a good drunk. You're supposed to lose. Friday night or Saturday afternoon or whatever, you know, or how did I get here and who are you and all that stuff. Uh, I didn't think there was anything wrong with that. I figured, that, you know, that's, that's what it meant by being a good two-fisted Irish drunk. Uh, I had been reared in, in the uh, parochial schools in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia there, and I know that those nuns, when they were talking about uh, a god, they were talking about a loving God, but somewhere along the line between the time where they were and where I was, it switched around, and the God that I was understanding or listening to or hearing about 
was a guy who had a club over his shoulder, and he's leaning over, and he's watching me, and he's making book. <laughs> saying, go ahead, you step one step out of line, I'm going to break your leg. You know? <laughs> this was a God of fear, and I couldn't stand that kind of a God. No. So I walked away from, from so-called organized religion. See, I was, I was a bigoted Irish Catholic uh, up until the time I was in the middle of Anzio uh, during the Second World War. That was the last so-called popular war we had. <laughs> up until that time, if you weren't Irish and you weren't Catholic, you were nothing. You know, My whole family is still that way. There's still a bunch of bigoted Irish, redneck Irish Catholics in the city of Philadelphia. And, and they haven't changed a bit. Uh, but I come, came to out of that, uh, in the middle of, of Anzio, I looked around and I said, well, wait a minute, if Catholics and Irish are the only ones that are really worth a damn, how come a couple of good Irish Catholic boys like Jack Farrell and Bill Foley get their head blown off and these characters over here are still walking around? So my thinking did a complete reversal. You know? At that time, I said I was also very bigoted. I was. Except when a foxhole fell in on top of me, and I got uh, a couple of hands reached in to pull me out. I don't know how long I had been there. One of the hands was as black as the ace of spades, and the other belonged to a guy by the name of Cohen. But what I was about that threw out a hell of a lot of the so-called uh, racism, bigotry, or anything else. I come in now, and I says, how do I get sober? He says, sit down and shut up. We'll tell you how to stay sober. But I didn't come in now, and I was looking for sobriety. I came in here because I thought I was losing my mind. Those short hops were okay. But suddenly, after alienating an awful lot of people, including family, wife, kids, and everything else, I found myself outside of Oklahoma City, hitchhiking, blind drunk. Uh, and I said, wait a minute. I started drinking in Philadelphia, and I remember I had $1,700 in my pocket belonging to the Mafia because I was tied up with a number racket and a horse racket. I woke up outside of Oklahoma City, hitchhiking, and I don't remember getting from Philadelphia to Oklahoma City, and I had $2,600 in my pocket, and I didn't know where that came from. And I'm scared, and I figure, hey, I'm beginning to lose it, you know. I, I, I think I'm sort of, I'm not snapping back, you know. I think about that time, I used to have snap back or stand back or something, whatever the hell I was supposed to do. And I wasn't snapping back with a damn. And I had a few jugs there, and I, I, I decided I'd better take a few drinks and find out what's going on. So I had a few drinks outside of Oklahoma City, and that's all I remember about Oklahoma City. One hour, you know. And the next thing I saw was a highway sign that says, uh, U.S. 66, California. And I said, I went the wrong way. I'm in, I'm in needles, you know. And I, I don't have anywhere near that $2,600. I still got money in my pocket. I still got a jug, and I woke up scared again. I said, whoa, I'm really, I'm really going bonkers. I'm going crazy. I woke up in a doorway, and I remember 20 minutes outside of Needles. I woke up in a doorway on East Fifth Street in Los Angeles at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I looked around, and the clientele I saw walking around there didn't look like they were affluent people heading for their office. <laughs> you know? They, they were all going around saying, well... Who's got what? We've got because somebody had to get enough to get that first jug to go, and I felt real at home on Skid Row in Los Angeles. Uh, and I said, "Man, I have really gone. I'm really gone completely crazy now. I have lost people. I have nobody left to blame but me, and I'm going nuts." 
And I got, I got to find people. I don't know who, who they are, what they are, but I, I can't live without people. And I went wandering up and down those streets and alleys of, of Muscatel Canyon there in Los Angeles, and I saw a big place that said uh, AA meeting tonight, 8.30, coffee and sandwiches afterward. I didn't even see that words AA. I saw the words that says meeting. I saw the words that says coffee and sandwiches. I didn't see any price on it. And there was nobody standing at the door saying whether you could or could not come in. And I went wandering through the door, and immediately I thought I had gotten into a loony bin because the, in the inmates were running the institution, you know. Because <laughs> the first thing they did, they walked up and they stuck their hand and said, Hi, we're glad to see you. And right away I knew that these were nuts. <laughs> because nobody had been glad to see me for a long, long time. Uh, but I did hear them say, Anonymous. You know, I didn't hear that alcohol so much, but I heard them say anonymous. And I was fearful because I had walked out of the city of Philadelphia with an awful lot of money belonging to the mafia who don't take kindly to that. And I said, if this is anonymous, I don't have to tell anybody my name. I can hide here. I can blend into the wallpaper and nobody's going to even know where I am. And that worked real good. Uh, when I heard them say, one of the requirements around here is that if you want to stay sober, you don't drink. If you don't drink, you get sober. And I said, well, hell, everybody knows that. <laughs> I said, well, that, I can do that. If that's part of the thing, I'll go with that. Uh, so long as nobody asks me who I am or where I'm from, you know. So long as the word don't get back to Philadelphia, where these people are, are looking for my head. And that's all I did. I came around to these meetings for 11 months, telling you my name was Joe, and that's all I'm telling you. I was staying sober, or dry, because... Uh, they had coffee and donuts and coffee and sandwiches at these meetings. And the price was right. It was free. You know, I went walking in there. I'd stuff up as many of those red jelly donuts as I could. And that coffee, you know. And uh, I'd nod my head at the right time. And I'd, I'd smile at the right time. And somebody would say to me, how are things going? And I could put a big phony grin on my face and lie like a trooper. Everything is going wonderful. You know? none, of it, none of it I believed. But I said, hey. I, I can stay here and I can hide and I can be safe. And, and this worked real good for about four months. And then I had an, about a series of about seven months where this thing started going. Said, Wait a minute, stupid. You wandered into this meeting not even knowing you had a problem with alcohol and you're not sure you got a problem with alcohol yet. But you wandered in here. How do you know that somebody else from the city of Philadelphia may not wander into one of these meetings who knows you by reputation, who you don't know. And they go back to Philadelphia, and some of those guys in the mafia are going to say, I wonder whatever happened to Joe Quinn. Oh, I saw him in a meeting out there in Los Angeles, an AA meeting, and the next thing you know, these guys with the knives that look like they're about that long are going to be out here looking for my head. Well, about that time, I said, I better do something about trying to get them off my back. And it's really all, all my idea was to get them off my back. Uh, I heard a meeting, went to a meeting where I heard a guy say he made amends by writing a letter. And I said, well, no, that that's, sounds like a pretty simple way. You know, I, I had heard these people talk about these steps. I wasn't doing any one of them other than I was just hanging on by my fingernails, just not drinking, you know. Uh, and even though I'm churning my guts up inside, I didn't want to tell them that because... I figured if all of a sudden I started telling those people what I was actually thinking, they were going to throw me out. Or I thought that maybe after three or four months, 
they're going to come up with some kind of a quiz where you've got to know what the hell they're talking about as far as these steps, you know. And I didn't want to do to, uh, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't want to do one of these, these people. I didn't want to do any one of these steps because the thing, they gave me a copy of the book, you know, and they, they said, here, here, use our book. And I had their book and I had my fingers stuck in there. I never opened it. No way, no. Because I saw a lot of people around these meetings who had opened that book. And they all had that grin on their face. And they all seemed to think that it became universal that once they opened that, that book, they had to first of all get honest. And I didn't have an honest bone in my body. And I didn't want to gamble on being honest. No thanks. Uh, but I, I said, well, if they got this quiz and I fail the quiz, they're going to throw me out the door. So maybe I better con these people into thinking I know the answers. And the only way I would do that, I'd go to meetings, and I'd sit in the front row, the second row, with a book under my arm, gazing up at the speaker. Uh, my mind is hunting in, in uh, Hollywood Park, Santa Anita, or chasing some girl or something, you know. And the only time I came back to the meeting was when the speaker would tell a joke. He used to bounce off the back walls, you know. Then I listened real good, and I memorized what he had to say right after the laugh. Because after the meeting, I could be like, and be like gangbusters myself. They say, uh, wasn't he funny when he said this? And I would say, yes, but did you catch the full weight of what he had to say immediately? And, and then I would quote verbatim what the guy had said, you know, and everybody's mouth drops open. And man, this joke was really listening. You know, so I figured if I would con them enough, they would say, it would be absolutely stupid to give this guy the quiz because obviously he knows the answers. <laughs> well, if there's anybody here who happens to be new or comparatively new and is wondering whether or not there's a certain period of time when they're going to come up with a quiz and if you don't know the answers, they're going to throw you out, throw it out and forget it, you know. There is no quiz. There are just 12 suggested steps, you know. And, they just, and if you do these things, things are going to happen. Uh, and... Uh, there's a lot of people say, if you do these steps, life is going to get better. Life is going to get different. It may not be better, but it's sure going to be different, you know. Uh, I, I, the reason, one of the reasons that I'm a, a uh, controversial, I'm, I'm not a speaker so much as I'm a talker, you see. I, I wander all over the place. One of the reasons that I'm, I'm very controversial is we have this one tradition that everybody wants to quote verbatim. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. Not necessarily so. You can have the greatest desire in the world and if you don't do something about it you can stay drunk for the rest of your life. There's only one way that I know of that alcoholics can stay sober and that is with total abstinence. You know, and that's the name of the game. Breathe in, breathe out, don't drink between breaths and repeat as required. And that's the way to become an old-timer. Don't drink and don't die. But when this guy talked about writing a letter, I wrote a letter, long, flowery, I put all these phrases that I heard all these people talking about in AA, you know, easy does it, live and let live, especially that one, you know. Uh, doing the best you can with whatever you got, wherever you are, I didn't believe any one of these cliches, but it looked good on paper. And that's all I did is I wanted to impress this guy back there and get him off my back. And my return address was general delivery. I didn't really want to pinpoint me too much. And uh, 
I got back a letter from this guy who was good an AA picture you ever read. He said, you were costing us more with your drinking you ever could have walked away with. And we're glad to see that you finally got to AA because maybe, maybe eventually we may get our money back. But we're only concerned with whether or not you want to stay alive. And I was concerned about that too. <laughs> so I, I, I figured, well, you know, maybe, maybe I, now that the, the pressure is off a little bit, now I can get well financially. Because, you know, everything was, my, my God was also a dollar bill. You know? So uh, I, I contacted a few of the people that I knew in Philadelphia and I got well. I got enough information about some boat races that are going on at Hollywood Park or Santa Anita that enabled me to get well financially and I paid them back their money. And this is after 11 months and after 11 months of not having a drink, I got drunk right up here. Now, I now had to put together a case for me that made it logical for me to say I could not possibly be an alcoholic at the age of 29. And I took the next three months of going around the meeting after meeting after meeting, hearing people talk about this happened to me and that happened to me and this happened to me, and they're an alcoholic, and I said it didn't happen to me, so maybe I'm not an alcoholic. Maybe I was just a heavy social drinker, you know? And as soon as I had that thought going up here, man, I'm dead, you know? Uh, because I went around finding out ways and means of why to prove that I could not possibly be alcoholic. And when you go into it with, with something like that, we can con ourselves into that. I believed it. I thought it got to a point where I decided that uh, these graybeards, these ancient alligators who were around at these meetings, had said to me, 29, I don't think you can be alcoholic at the age of 29. I nodded my head. I don't think so either. You know, I just think that's a good idea. Uh, maybe I was just physically run down. You know? They talked about a disease. I said, have I got a disease? I don't know. They, they talk about an allergy. And uh, it seemed like every one of these people who were talking about allergies, none of them knew what an allergy was. I go up to them and say, boy, those who had some kind of knowledge of medicine, they all seemed to be able to tell me what an allergic reaction was. They said, you know, you break out in a rash or something or other. Uh, I never even thought the fact that when I drank, I broke out in a rash of strange towns, strange jails, strange beds, strange this and strange that. I didn't consider that an allergic reaction at all until I got back. Uh, but I conned myself into saying, I am okay. I am once again the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. And on Labor Day of 1952, I finally convinced myself that I was a heavy social drinker. Now, I've got some ideas about that term social drinker, which also uh, I don't consider them, I don't consider it unique, but I believe, I never heard a social drinker call themselves a social drinker. I heard alcoholics refer to social drinkers and I believe that everyone I ever heard refer to that was as the way they would like to continue to drink like they drank and not get in trouble like they don't. You know? An alcoholic, my idea of a social drinker was somebody who was sitting there twirling a bottle of beer for three rounds of, of a fight, you know. And I look at him and say, you want to inhale that or let it evaporate or what? You know? I mean, and that was not the kind of a social drinker I wanted to be. I wanted to be the kind that I could drink the way I drank, I'm going to hit bottom and spread it and do all the things I was supposed to do, but I wouldn't lose control. Because my biggest problem was I thought that I had to be in control. The fact was I thought I was in control. And that was, became a hell of a problem. 
so on Labor Day of 1952, I went out to prove to you people and to Alcoholics Anonymous and everything else that I did not have an incurable disease known as alcoholism. I did not have an allergy to alcohol. All of this malarkey about this being a, a progressive disease which gets worse, never better, was just that, malarkey. And I started drinking on Labor Day of 1952. Inside of one week, I was in the same shape mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually, financially, and morally as I had been in 14 months before and had a few other things thrown in too. Remorse and self-pity and self-condemnation. I had let everybody down. So for the next three and a half months, on a daily basis, around the clock, I had to keep trying to find what was the one way that I could survive out here as an alcoholic, as a drinker. Uh, and I went from my social drinking, took me from 137 pounds to 103 pounds. I socially wrote $1,500 worth of phony 10, 15, and 25 dollar checks in a town of 3,500 people and didn't go to jail. I socially got blind drunk, stole a car, and attempted murder. And I would like to say I did these things in the middle of a blackout so I could sort of absolve myself. I didn't. I knew exactly what I was going to do. And I don't know where your insanity took you, but my insanity took me to the fact that I'm driving down a highway looking for the deputy sheriff of that area because the week before he had said to me, Hey, Irish, I think you're drinking a little too much. <coughs> and I stole a car the guy I was drinking with Went down there looking for this deputy sheriff and run him right off the cliff. And I knew what I was going to do, and there was nothing that I could pull from inside of him to make me stop. And I missed him, and I went into the ditch. And he couldn't prove the intent, so that I threw that one out. Uh, the guy whose car I stole, I had been drinking with him, so he didn't want to blow the whistle on a drinking buddy. The judge, he didn't have any compassion at all. He just looked down over his horn-rimmed glasses. And he says, 30 days, he says, we'll give you the best we can, 75 days or $150. And I conned him into taking a check for $150 that <laughs> wasn't worth the paper was put him on. Now, I don't know about you people, but I don't know where you're, but I mean, my insanity took me to laying a hot check on a judge who's got my butt in his hand, you know? But <laughs> I had to go back there to that Navy base up there at Inyo Carm where I'm working in the middle of the desert and find 15 guys with 10 bucks a piece to put in the bank to cover that. Now that's insanity. And that happened on my natal birthday. That happened in November. I still had to go until the 17th of December. Still had to go to a point where I woke up in the middle of the desert, lying in my own puke in the middle of the DTs, surrounded by wine bottles, my heart pounding out of my chest, and I'm dying. And it's the 17th of December. I said, if I keep this up, I am not going to live to see Christmas. That's eight days away. I don't know what went on between the 17th and 21st of December, 1952, because I'm in and out of my mind. But I do know that I became obsessed with one idea. If I wanted to live, I had to, if I wanted to die sober, I had to first of all get sober. And the only place I had ever been able to get and stay sober for any period of time was once that bunch of jerks in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I gotta go back there whether I like it or not. I, and I grabbed a handful of bus up there and I said to the guy, give me a check back to, to Los Angeles. The guy said, this won't take you to Los Angeles. I said, how far will it take me? He said, Lancaster. I said, okay, give me a ticket to Lancaster. I don't know how I got in from Lancaster into Los Angeles. 
The last conscious recollection I have of taking a drink was the 17th of December. The first conscious recollection I have of being back in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous was the 21st of December, 1952. And I've been real fortunate. I haven't had to go away since. I've heard an awful lot of people say it hasn't been necessary for me to take a drink in X number of years and all that. And I didn't want to be like the guy. He, he got up and said, I haven't, it meant, hasn't been necessary for me to take a drink in 23 years. And the guy there says, Charlie, what do you mean? He said, I saw you drunk four weeks ago. He said, well, that wasn't necessary. You know? Well, I came here. I have speakers, and I, I believe that you have some people here who have said this, that I haven't, they said, I haven't had a desire to take a drink since I went to my first AA meeting. I have had many a desire to drink since I went to my first AA meeting. I found out that there's a price that's got to be paid for it, and the price is still unchanged, and I said, no thanks, I can't afford that. I don't want the price. I've had quite a few compulsions because of various reasons which we give ourselves, you know. Emotional upsets, your wife goes back to her uh, to her boyfriend or something, or, or you know, or, or you lose your job, or you get a new job, or pressures and all that. Uh, but the program has given me steps, meetings, people, inventory, and all these things necessary to fight off any compulsion that I have had over these past 36 years. There's one thing I haven't had. I have not had an obsession to drink greater than the obsession I woke up with in the middle of the Mojave Desert on the 17th of December, 1952. I became obsessed with the idea that I wanted to die sober. And I was willing to do anything and everything necessary in order for me to die sober. And that obsession is still the greatest uppermost in my mind today. And any time I let any other obsession come anywhere, anywhere near pushing it aside, I better kick it back. Because to me, without sobriety, without Alcoholics Anonymous, without a program and a way of living, I'd have been dead a long time back. Uh, I came to this program and I said, what do I got to do to stay sober? He said, well, you go around a lot of these meetings and you're going to hear a sound going... He said, don't worry about it. That's just some minds closing. You know, you're going to know a lot of closed minds in Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, now, if you're going to be a baby of mine, don't close your mind. Open your mind, open your heart, open your ears, open your eyes, and shut your mouth. Why? He said, sit down and shut up, and we'll tell you how to stay sober. I said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, don't hear me no butts. Sit down. He said, you don't know a damn thing about staying sober, and we do. He said, now, this program is designed around 12 suggested steps, and they put them down there in order because uh, that seemed like a logical way to put them together, you know? They said, now, you're going to hear some speakers say you can work this program any way you please. Go get one of them for a sponsor. He said, if you want to work this program the way I tell you, they said, then sit down and shut up, and I'll tell you what to do. And I'll tell you what not to do. And I'll tell you when to do it, when not to do it. I said, wait a minute, nobody can tell you how to stay sober. He said, my sponsor told me. He said, I'm sober for four and a half years or five and a half years at that time. He said, and it worked for me. He says, and I got a sort of a sneaking hunch. It'll work for you. He said, but you got to, he said, I'll give you a guarantee that it'll work. A written guarantee. I said, oh? He said, yeah. He said, and when you become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, 
you have the privilege of giving a written guarantee to anybody else in this program saying, I will give you a written guarantee that you no longer have a problem with alcohol so long as you do just follow the very simple rules. I said, okay, what's the simple rules? Breathe in, breathe out, don't drink between breaths. That's all. He says, total and absolute, uh, total abstinence is the name of the game. Now, sometimes this is also why I've become a controversial figure as far as, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, treatment centers or hospitals are concerned. Uh, because a lot, a lot of them seem to give their patients the impression uh, that maybe, after a while, they will once again get back the management of their life. Once again, they will get to a point where maybe they can have a little bit of light wine or beer. That's deadly. If, I mean, if, if the, the treatment center you're going to, or the hospital you're going to, or the people who talk to you, do not stress to you that the bottom line is total abstinence, then they're, they're selling you short. And if you accept anything less than total abstinence, you are selling yourself short. Program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I, I love these television ads. You know, uh, number one success rate. Alcoholics Anonymous has a 100% success rate. Because Alcoholics Anonymous does not have drinking members. keep score, we don't keep, you know, take a log book and say, hey, you're a member, you're not a member. You automatically declare yourself in when you come in here and sit down. Voluntarily, you sit down. Okay? And he says, and if you don't want to, you never have to hurt another day due to booze so long as you voluntarily sit there and pay attention and follow the very simple little rule. And he says, and if you get up and leave, you may want to blame a lot of other things. You may want to blame your job. Your wife, your girlfriend, money, all these things. He said, but when, the, when it gets down to the bottom line on that, you leave because you leave voluntarily. You voluntarily return to insanity. He said, now if you want to voluntarily return to insanity, we'll gladly go out there and refund your misery for you. Go right ahead. But you don't have to. Alcoholics Anonymous is the only organization I know of that says it's a, it requires 100% Patient participation. And if you got 100% patient participation, that patient is going to get well, get sober. I, you know, sobriety is, that, is, is, is automatic. If you stop drinking, anybody stops drinking and doesn't do any other thing, they'll get sober automatically. Alcoholics Anonymous isn't out here to get you sober. Hell, you get here and you, you, you just, by the process of, of not drinking on a, on a daily basis, you become sober. Uh, I said, but there's a, a little underlying problem there, I think. If you don't do anything else but just not drink, this may be as good as it's ever going to get. <laughs> this may be as close to sanity as you're ever going to come back to. Is that acceptable? No, no. That's why I talk about these spasms of sobriety. Because for a long time, just not drinking was good enough for me until I got uncomfortable with it. And I was wondering about these guys and gals who were going around with a big grin on their face, and they seemed like they were enjoying life. And I wasn't quite enjoying life. And I says, um, Sully, I said, well, what, what do I got to do? He says, find the winners. I said, well, but where do I find the winners? He said, damn it, Joe, every Sunday night you go up to that meeting at the motion picture group, 
and there were 500 people in that meeting every Sunday night. He says, and every Sunday night they ask, are there any newcomers here? You know, they didn't say, is there anybody here with 30 days or 60 days? Or... Anybody who consider himself a newcomer, would you care to? If you care to, raise your hand, you know? And you see a hand or two go up over here, and somebody get their hand up about this far, and somebody sitting beside would shove their hand up the day he is. You know? uh, so he says, don't pay any attention to the hands. No? Uh-uh. At the same time those hands go up, there's going to be some heads swivel around in the meeting. Pay attention to the head swivelers. Oh? He says, right after the meeting, you see which of those head swivelers make a beeline for which of those newcomers, and then you go and you follow them and you do what they're doing. Because they're winners going over to losers trying to teach them how to become winners. You don't go to losers to find out new ways to lose. I got enough ways to lose by myself. I wasn't going to them and find out well, how did they drink, you know. Well, how do you want to stay sober? Uh, and so he says, and when you do that, he says, find these winners and follow them and do what they're doing. He says, and any time you got questions, he says, go back to the book. He says, because the book was designed for people like you and me who needed some kind of a set of instructions. Uh, I hear a lot of people today who said, I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't found page 449 in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Page 449, which refers to acceptance. That's fine. I've got a big book at home, second edition. Page 449 is Joe's Woes. I've got a, I've got a first edition that doesn't have a page 449. <laughs> no? That, that, that uh, acceptance is the thing. That was put in there in 1975. You know, here it is, 1989, 1988. You know, and, and uh, there are a lot of people today who come into Alcoholics Anonymous who are operating off of that third edition, which is real fine because one thing I'll tell you, those first 164 pages plus the doctor's opinion has remained virtually unchanged since 1939. They've made a lot of changes in the back, they've taken things out, they put things in. One of the things they took out of the second edition was a, the one story in the back was called The Professor and the Paradox. I hate like hell to say, they should have put that back in. Because they're talking about the fact that this is the only program where we have to give up in order to win. We've got to give it away to keep it we got to, to uh, die in order to live and uh, what was it? surrender to win, surrender to win, uh, hurt to get well, die to win, die to live, and give it away. Give it away. To, I said, wait a minute, I got this. I don't want to give it away. I said, you better. I said, well, what do I got to give away? He said, the very fact that you're walking, living proof that somebody can come out from underneath the bridge come out from underneath the sand dune, come walking into a place and hold their head high and say, I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I go around to a lot of meetings, and I hear a lot of people, and there's some people who've got bracelets of, of sobriety chips. I mean, I, 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 get, I get controversial about those. I get controversial about a lot of things. Oh, but uh, you know, uh, in, in deference to our, our non-smoking section over here, I wish that this smoking section over here would take a, a short minute to everybody take a deep breath 
inhale and then exhale in that direction, see? That way we're going to purify some more of the air through, through human lungs and we want you people over here to sort of stick around too. I, see, I'm, I'm a dedicated smoker, oh God. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I said to him, what, what, what do I got to do? They said, well, Joe, what part of your life do you think you can run and still race? I went around and all the, oh, that's right, I was off on these damn these sobriety chips. So I said, I got my 30-day chip, my 60-day chip, my 90-day chip, or six-month chip. And for some strange reason, a lot of people seem to think this is a reward for staying sober. I think it's a reminder, you know. I remember years ago, there was a guy out in our area by the name of Eddie. And he was having a big argument with his sponsor in his sponsor's room. And he's getting ready to storm out and his sponsor says, Wait a minute, boy, where are you going? I don't really have a... He said, Here, put this in your pocket. And he flipped him a marble. He said, What's this? He said, Put it in your pocket. He said, Because when you get down the corner, he says, As mad as you are, you're going to make a decision whether or not you're going to go in that bar or that liquor store. He said, And you do. He said, You go in there and he said, You decide to order one. He says, Pull your money out and look at it. And look at that marble. And if you decide that you want to pay for that drink, take that marble and throw it as far as you can because you've just lost your last marble. <laughs> but if that marble reminds you of who you are and what you are, is it can put it back and walk out and say, hey, I'll try this again one more time. Uh, we had a guy who came to our group for two solid years and, and never participated in the meeting. As soon as the Lord's Prayer ended, before the Amen had really echoed off the walls, he's already out the door, you know. Until one night we had this guy Eddie speak at our meeting, you know. And when he's talking about this marble technique, this guy's forward on the edge of his chair, puffing on his big cigar, mm -hmm. nodding his head, oh yeah. And right after the meeting he made a beeline for Eddie's, hey, give, give me that marble routine again, will you? Eddie says, I'll do better than that, I'll give you a marble. And he gave him a marble. And for the next two and a half years, Charlie's going around with his marble in his pocket. And, and every time he changed clothes, he always had the marble with him, you know. And two and a half years later, he's leading the meeting at the motion picture, uh, at our early birds group, the young people's group. Yeah, once I was a young person. Once. You know? <laughs> and uh, he said, the funny thing happened to me on the way to the meeting tonight. He said, you know, I smoke a lot of cigars. I've been smoking them for coming to meetings for years. He says, and I stopped at the usual liquor store down in my corner to pick up my cigars. He said, when I pulled out the money to pay for my cigars, my marble dropped out and rolled under the counter. He says, and without a second's hesitation, I'm on my hands and knees and I'm scrabbling down at him. The guy looks at, what are you doing down there? I'm looking for my marble. <laughs> he says, it wasn't until tonight that I realized how much subconscious faith I have placed in that marble. So you people who are coming to get a chip for 30 days or 60 days or 90 days or a year or five years or 10 years, that is not reward. We don't ask for a reward for saving our life. We have a reminder of what keeps saving our life. And I've seen some guys and gals going around with something that looks like a goddamn rainbow, you know? There are a lot of people who keep saying, uh, I'm back, and I get a chill down my back. I'm back. 
somewhere along the line they didn't pay attention the first time around. Uh, and you got some guys and gals who bounce in and out like rubber balls. Guys that I've been to nine different detoxification centers. This is what happened the first eight. Didn't pay attention. Well, I'm back now. I'm here. So okay. Uh, we suggest that you try this on the basis of your last drink was your last drink. Your next one might be. Ooh, I didn't like that. You know, um, these, these people that, and you know these people have heard expression many times. If you want what we have, and by the virtue of that that bracelet, they are telling you that many times they said no thanks. I don't want what you have. So don't ask them if you want what we have. Say if you don't want what you've got, and are willing to go to any lengths to get rid of it. Then you're ready to take certain steps. I, I said to Sullivan, "What do I got to do about these steps?" He said, "Very simple." He says, "Let's sit down and talk about." He said, "What what part of your life do you think you can run and still drink?" And I says, "Well, what do you mean?" He says, "Ask yourself if you think you've got any area of your life that you can still drink." And I finally said to him, "I said, John, there ain't no way." I mean, I've tried every way from the ace, and it don't work. He said, "Okay, now you've just taken the first half, the first step. Sit down. You're going." He said, "Don't, don't worry about the second step." I said, "No, wait a minute. You're throwing me a curve already. You tell me that there's twelve steps I got to take. You said I just voluntarily took that first step, and you say, hey, you don't take the second. He says, read it. It says you come to believe. Doesn't say you come to believe instantaneously." <laughs> The second step happens to you. And the only way it can happen to you is you bring the body. The mind will catch up, you know. He says, no, uh, uh, he says, and when you do these things, uh, he says, strange things happen. You find yourself staying sober week after week after week and not knowing how come. Here I am, I'm, why am I amongst this bunch of lepers in this leper colony? It's because they think like I think. You know, these, these are the only kind of people I could associate with. I said, okay, what do I got to do? He says, come to the meeting. He says, yeah, I'm so I said, well, okay, but there's got to be more to it than that. He said, oh, there's a lot more to it than that. But if you don't have that first one, you don't have anything. If you have that first one, you stand a chance. That's all we tell you. You stand a chance. And depending on how much work you want to put in, uh, if you just don't drink and do nothing else, as I said, you could be wind up in the most miserable SOB around. Uh, I go to a lot of meetings and I hear people say they're having trouble with their third step. I say, oh. That used to be John Sullivan's favorite expression for me. Whenever I was starting rattling off about some of the problems that I would be having, he would say, oh. There is nothing that is more ego deflating than somebody looking at you and saying, oh. <laughs> or, is that so? You know? And right away you got to say, let me run this back again. Maybe maybe I ran that past them the wrong way. Uh, I hear these people say that they, they're having trouble with the third step. I say, well, do you read the book? Oh, yeah, yeah, I read the book. Oh, okay. Uh, how come you're having trouble with the third step? They say, what do you mean? I said, well, the book tells you what to do about the third step. These are people who hear this, read this book and hear it read every meeting, and they come up to the ABCs. And it says, see, God could and would if sought. And then you hear that. And that's, as far as they're concerned, where the book ends. 
That's where the program starts. Because the very next line says, being convinced we were at step three. Didn't say we'd done it. So that's where we got to. Here we are, here and now, at step three. And then it says, what do we mean by that and what do we do? And then for the next two and a half pages, single-spaced, in English, black and white, needs no interpretation, it tells what they meant by that and what they did. Alright? And then it comes up with that words, we were now at step three. You know? My God. And I said, now, why don't you go home and open up your book, or take the book down off the shelf first, and dust it off, and they want to know how come that I knew their book was dusty. I said, well, it must be because you, you, you got to the point where you said it's the end of the book and you closed it and set it up there. They don't like me for that. They, 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 they want to know about the promises. I said, the promises, they come up after step nine. I said, no, no, when do I get mine? I said, I know an awful lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous who have been sober, dry, or whatever you want to call it, for many, many years who never got anywhere near step nine. Never got anywhere near step five. Because they were still procrastinating on step four. Because, you know, uh, may I, Eddie? Step four, uh, they, they talk about these, these promises, and I said, well, now let, let's talk about promises here, huh? Uh, I said, they got some, some promises in this book that uh, they told me about, in that period of time when they said uh, being convinced we were at step three down to the point where they said we were now at step three they got some promises in there that says to me if I am doing this thing right I am going to have a lot of promises already taken care of before I get anywhere near step three one and two lock them up if you don't have them locked up go back and lock them up again because otherwise you're still spinning your wheels you're still trying to go without any kind of motion, you know? It gets down here and says, first of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. You know, take off the God suit, that's all. First, next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal and we are his agents. He is the father and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple. Now, that doesn't say most simple ideas are good. No. And this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we pass to freedom. And we've got a thing up here that says the key to freedom. And there is the concept of what this whole, this whole thing is all about. The key is in the willingness to do. Because it says, when we sincerely took such a position... All sorts of remarkable things follow. And then here are some of the promises that I found, which I just toss out to you to either take or no take. I don't care. But they're here and they're free. You know, it doesn't cost a damn thing. We had a new employer being all-powerful, and here's a promise. He provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing... Here's another promise. We became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans, and our designs. More and more we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. And then they get real more powerful with some of these promises. 
as we felt new power flow in. That's a promise. As we enjoyed peace of mind. That's a promise. As we discovered, not discovering, as we discovered we could face life successfully. That's a promise. As we became conscious of His presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, and the hereafter. We were reborn. Now there's a whole flock and flock of ironclad promises that will happen to you or I or anybody else. And it says we are now at step three. Now I look at step three as a real complex thing. You know, it's a sort of a it's got many many sub assemblies. You know, uh, and being in the engineering area and everything else, they wanted to talk about three uh, A. Uh, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. At 3B, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and another human being. Some people want to put numbers on them, but you know, they also can come up with... Uh, uh, and you put all these sub-assemblies together, and pretty soon you have accomplished what it says, we made a decision to turn our will and life over the care of God, you know, as we understood Him, as we misunderstood Him. Made a decision, that's all. So it didn't say we did it, it said we made a decision to do it. And I make a decision to light the cigarette. <laughs> hmm. How come no smoke? Oh. Oh. No matter what decision it is that I have ever made in my life, it got nowhere unless I did the follow-up action necessary to make that decision an accomplished fact. And when we take these third steps and we make a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God, as we understand Him, misunderstand Him, or don't, we don't believe I don't know. But we have a lot of work that we've got to do on ourselves. I had a lot of work that I had to do on me. I mean, I don't want to take anybody else's inventory. I probably will. But, no. <laughs> but uh, I, I said to Sullivan Oak, he said, well, let's talk about this, this God bit. And I said, no, let's... Forget about that part. He says, why? I said, well, I, I'm, I'm a real strange individual, John. He says, tell me how. You know, tell me. Tell me something I don't know that you're a strange individual. I said, well, I'm a street person. And I was born in the streets. And, and I grew up on the streets. And I never asked anybody for anything. And I'm not about to now. And I didn't think that there was any God or any parts of me. I thought I was the only God that I knew. I didn't think that there was a power greater than Joe Quinn. He said, that's great. What? He said, yeah. He said, you're the greatest power you know, and you wound up in a doorway, and then utilizing the same great power, you wound up on the same dune, then you better be willing to turn your world and your life over to some power other than you. They can't louse it up anymore. I said, that's logical. Okay. He says, and besides, he says, uh, what's your problem? I said, well, John, all these people tell me that, that, I, uh, that I am not, my life is unmanageable. He says, well, is it? I said, well, it is for now. I says, well, are you looking forward to the time when you can finally get to manage your life? Isn't everybody? He says, I'll tell you what you do, Joe. He says, take that book and go home and study it. Go through it page by page and line by line and find out what it is you have to do and with what intensity you have to do it 
And so suddenly you get back the management of your life. And I went to that book and for the next months or so I'm underlying this and that and everything. And I finally come back and says, no way, John. I mean, there's no way that I get back. He said, bingo. I said, what do you mean? He says, now, now that you've gotten into the habit of being a little bit more honest, a little bit more searching, a little bit more fearless, why don't you go back and find out when were you in control of your life? And I didn't want to do that either. But I went back and I looked and looked and looked and I finally got back up and I said, John, if I'm real honest about it, I don't think I ever was. He said, that's wonderful. And I said, wait a minute, I'm not, I never was, I'm not now, and no matter what I do, I'm not going to be in control. I said, why do you say that's wonderful? He says, because just because you have not been in control has not prevented you from getting to this point in time, right here and right now. He says, and this is really all you've got is here and now. He said, you're going to find that out when you take inventories. And I said, that's another area I want to talk to you about. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't like the idea about taking an inventory of me. He said, why not? I said, well, I said, I really don't know how to take an inventory. He said, I'm glad you asked that. And he handed me a pen. I said, what do I do with that? He said, what do you do with a pen? I said, well, you write with it. He said, okay. Sit down and start writing. I said, what do I write about? He said, what's your name? I said, Joe Quinn. Put that down. And I wrote down, Joe Quinn. He said, okay, now you've started. I said, is that how you start? It's more than you had. <laughs> yeah? Uh, he said, now, he said, now you can be like the book says, you know, you can put out these columns this way and that way. I tried it that way, and you know, I got nothing but a mishmash of, of, of I, I couldn't find out who was interfering with what and what was in danger and this and that. But all I came up with was a mess of garbage. I've got a couple of inventories at home, some of my early inventories, some of the greatest bits of fiction you have ever read. You know, uh, so I, I'm, I said, I can't do it that way, John. And nothing comes out. He said, well, uh, some people, he said, that's just a general idea, Joe. They say you, you take stock of what you got. Uh, some people take down uh, different columns. Uh, book, steps, meetings, God, money, sex, all that. He said, they put down everything in this column about what they think about that particular subject. And pretty soon this column blends into this column, and this one comes over here. And at the end of it, you got the whole thing together down here in a great big ball of wax. The only problem is you're over where that ball of wax starts and where it ends. I said, that's exactly what I wound up with. I don't know where to go. He said, okay, throw it out of the way too. I said, well, what am I going to do about taking amends? Uh, about taking an inventory? And he said, well, inventory, what do you got left? I said, what? Inventory, what do you got left? What are you working with right here and right now? Not what did you have five years ago or 20 years ago. That's gone. He says, inventory is the only thing you've got to work with is the stuff that's on your shelf right now. He says, the stuff you've got on your shelf right now, he says, you've got to examine it, look at it. He says, and if it's good, you're going to keep it there. And if it's not good, you're going to have to throw it away. He says, but before you throw it away, you say, now wait a minute. If it was on my shelf originally, it was okay. And now it's not. What was it that I did or didn't do that took something that used to be okay and turned it into a liability? And this, he says, is the going back. If you don't go back to all the way, did, my, did it all start when my mother burned my teddy bear? Or did it all start when I found out about girls? 
He says, when did, when did it all start? He says, it starts with you right here and right now. He says, now, the past is a hard thing. He says, the only thing we can learn from the past is, how, is what to do about it, you know. We can only, only learn from our mistakes. We, we, we can't, we don't, they're not, they're not out there to profit us here. He says, take a drag on your cigarette. And I took a drag. He'd blow it out. He said, now, take the very same drag. No, 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 the very same one. I said, I can't. He said, why not? I said, it's gone. He said, okay. He said, now, that's just how close your past is and how irrecallable it is. You can't undo anything you've ever done, anything you've ever thought, anything you've ever felt. He said, all you can do is say, let me try to do a little bit better today than I did yesterday. That's all Alcoholics Anonymous asked you to do. Uh, with a lot of people coming into the program today who have this, uh, this double or triple problem, whatever you want to refer to it, a lot of people coming in here, you know, uh, and they say, will this program work? And I say, unequivocally, yes, this program will work if you follow our first rule. And our first rule says we don't have drinking members. Uh, we don't have using members. We don't have... Uh, lying members or cheating members. We got a lot of people who, who come in here and start doing some lying and start doing some cheating and all of a sudden it kicks back in their head and they say, no thanks, I don't want any parts of this and they go out and they get drunk. Uh, I don't believe that Alcoholics Anonymous uh, would have survived as long as it has if Alcoholics Anonymous didn't show us a better way. If the program of Alcoholics Anonymous didn't give us a way it starts where booze left off and go up from there, it would not be palatable to the alcoholic. Uh, there was a guy who was flying from New York to Los Angeles. Uh, he was an addict. There was a guy who was an alcoholic who was also flying from New York to Los Angeles. And this may give you an idea of, of the thinking, you know. The addict has to go first cabin. he got to go speed <coughs> right now, instant. So he came on the SST the Concord, and he land up, zip, down, how was the trip? I don't know, it took an hour and 27 minutes, I didn't even get time to get my seatbelt fastened, and there I am. The alcoholic, he comes by way of a Cessna, he leaves New York and winds up in Teterbury, New Jersey, outside of Camden, the other side of Harrisburg, it takes him about three weeks, you know, and he sees an awful lot of the territory in the way, and can get off anywhere along the route, you know. Uh, but he lands in, in, at LAX right in front of the SST. And they both get out and they start walking over towards the gate. And the guy at the gate says, Hi, where'd you guys come from? And they both very honestly said, Just flew in from New York. Which is true. They get their boat luggage and they're standing out there. And the guy says, Hey, where are you going now? Well, I'm going down to the Ambassador Hotel. He says, So am I. He says, Why don't we share the ride? Why don't we share a cab? Okay, sure. So they shared a cab down to the Ambassador Hotel. They got to that destination by different methods. Eh? But they went from there to their final destination by the same method, sharing the cab. That's all we ask you in Alcoholics Anonymous. Come in here and regardless of how you got to that state of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, all we say is, hey, come on, the, the, the van's got room for another person. Come on and join us and share the ride. We're going towards the same place, looking for the same thing. Uh, I, I, I believe that the, the steps in Alcoholics Anonymous, and they say we're supposed to find a way to help the sick alcoholic, the alcoholic who still suffers. 
The alcoholic who still suffers is not necessarily some guy or some gal who's sitting there sweating and, and smelling the peraldehyde and, sh and shaking in their boots and everything else. It's the guy or the gal that's got the look in the back of the eye like the dog is caught in the middle of the freeway at rush hour. Where am I going? What's going on? Have you got some member of your group, whether they've been sober for five minutes or 15 years, who have got that look in the back of their eyes, walk up and stick your hand out. Say, hi, can I help? Now, if they're most, like most alcoholics, the proud species, they get lost. And then you say, are you sure? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Sit down. Uh, Sully said to me, if you find somebody, he said, when you get all screwed up, talk to somebody. He said, you take this inventory of yours, he says, uh, and uh, well, the reason a lot of people have trouble with these inventories is they say, hey, there's a step that follows this, which is i got to unload this to some people. And when I found out some of the things about me, I said, nobody's ever going to hear about this. Uh, and then I got sneaked in by that one part of the book, another part of the book, which I slightly disagree with, when the book says, when we hear, when we decide who's to hear our story, we go right to it. Well, that doesn't always work either, you know. Being a slide-back Irish Catholic, I decided that the one I should go to talk to was a priest, you know. So I went out to Walter Loyola and talked to Father Walsh Murray out there. And I said, I was at Walsh, and he had listened to many an alcoholic tell a story. And I'm rattling off this edited version of This Is My Life. <coughs> he told me it was an edited version. Well, I wondered how he knew. Uh, he says, Joe, this isn't going to work. And I said, what, 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 what do I mean? He said, do you think that you're, you're performing what you consider your 12th step or your 5th step in Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, I'm trying. He said, you forgot everything you knew about Catholicism. He said, when you're talking to God and using a priest, that's not another human being. That's just a channel. He said, but that's all right. You've got things in some semblance of order here. But don't worry about it. He said, you're going to find the guy or the gal you're supposed to talk to. And they will, you know. And I went, well, walked away just shaking my head. There was an old-time member of our group. I went running up to him. I said, hey, Bert, sit down. I want to tell you my inventory. He said, not me. What? He said, I'm not the guy. I said, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa. I'm supposed to talk to God and myself and another human being, and you're another human being, and you're here. He said, what makes you think that just because you've been sober for a little while, you are now capable of making that kind of a decision? You just made a decision to turn your willing life over to the care of God. Now why don't you let him do his job? And his job is to set up the time, the place, and the person you're supposed to talk to. And he will, but let him do it. You know? I walked away scratching my head. It can't work that way. We had a guy come into our group who was a retired Presbyterian minister. And when I first met him, I had an impression, a first impression to lasting. I thought he was a pompous ass. The day he died, my feelings about him were still the same. I still thought he was a pompous ass. But I can remember in the middle of a meeting, at the end of one meeting, at a discussion meeting we happened to be at, and he's sitting over here and I'm sitting over here, and I picked up a cup of coffee and I turned around, and the next thing I know, all of this just came spewing out. And all he did for four hours was grunt, light cigarettes, pour coffee, and I found myself telling this guy things that I swore no living soul was ever going to hear about Joe. I found myself telling him things that I said, you know, uh, rather than, I'd rather die than tell people this. And here I'm telling it. And the feelings and the emotions and the, the, the promise that had been given to me by these older heads, they said, when you finally reach the point where you find the guy or the gal that you're supposed to talk to, 
you're going to feel like the weight of the world lifted right off the top of your head. And I, I, I found myself, I, I felt like I was discovering levitation. You know, I mean, and I had that strange feeling that I really don't care if this guy wants to get up on the top of the biggest building around and shout out what I just told him. Because what I just told him was no longer inside of me and it could not hurt me unless I wanted to pull it back inside. <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm as free as I care to be. And, and I says, man, I'm high, you know. And I floated over to Sully and I said, John, I says, I think this goddamn program is going to work. <laughs> and I told him what had happened and he just bust out laughing. He says, great, you're now at step six. Huh? He says, yeah. He said, you did all the digging, all the cleaning in the house necessary to get to a point where now you can start to share. And he says, and remember, you only got a part of that job, that step to do. Your part and somebody else's part, huh? You become entirely ready, period. That's the end of your job in step six. Get off. To have God remove these defects of character. You don't become entirely ready to give God a hand. <laughs> he says, please, keep your hands off. You've lost it up enough. Go ahead. I said, okay. So consequently, in his uh, eighth step, uh, or in the seventh step, you humbly ask. He said, now there are some people who believe that by humbly asking, you down, you get their hands and knees, and you do the sign of the cross, and you oh dear God, you know. There's are others who want to be ranting and raving and be, being, take it, please. <laughs> he says, you throw that one word in there, please, and it makes it a humble request. I don't give a damn how arrogant you are. He said, okay, I got it. Get out of the way. And you better get out of the way because things are going to happen. You know? And, and so he said, now you got to make a list of all the people you have met and you got to go, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. So the, the, the step says, make a list of all the people you have harmed. So he says, do it the easy way. <laughs> what? He says, by your own admission, everybody you ever came in contact with when you were drinking, you were trying to clip them some way. So just make a list of all the people you have met. He says, and you know that if God is running this show, the amends that you're supposed to make to them will be made to them in His time, not in yours. He says, you make direct amends wherever possible, not whenever possible. You don't have a damn thing to say about God's timing. I know, I tried it my way. After seven years of sobriety, I went back to see my family in the city of Philadelphia. Four brothers, two sisters, and a next wife, you know? And when I had left there seven years before, they had a certain opinion of me. When I walked in there sober and everything else, they looked at me and they still had the same opinion. Because when we left here, we were drunken slob, so you're sober. What are you doing about the slob? And what could I tell them? They're on the East Coast and I'm on the West. You know, they haven't changed their minds one bit. They disown me, and the Irish don't just disown you for drinking. I had to have committed some crime against the family name, which was unthinkable or even unspeakable for them to talk about. And I got a little bit smart. I didn't think it was a very wise idea for me to try to dig up what it was that I had done, because it would open up old wounds and those old wounds might be across my eyebrows, and I said, no thanks. <laughs> I spent two weeks of the most up-and-down emotional yo-yo, and the only thing that kept me sober in those two weeks was a few words that Sully had said to me a few years before 
when I said, hey, the whole world has turned to crap and nothing has gone right and I am miserable. He says, compared to when? I said, what? He says, compared to last week, you're broke. Compared to last month, you're sick. He said, let's compare it to the 17th of December, 1952, at 5 o'clock in the morning. When you're laying in your own puke, your heart's pounding out of your chest, you're dying, and you said, I will do anything and everything in order to stay sober, in order to die sober. Is it that bad? I said, hell no. He said, okay, until it happens that bad, you're still ahead. You are still ahead of the game. You may not be ahead as far as you would like to be, as far as you should be, but you're as far ahead as you are. And that's all you got to accept that here I am, right here, right now. He says, now, uh, and, and I, the only thing that kept me alive, you know, sober, those two weeks was that compared to, I was comparing those seven years with these two weeks. You know, I was back to see my blood relations, but you know, uh, they hadn't wrapped their arms around me like, like the, like my friend Chuck used to always talk about the story about the prodigal son. Well, I was never much of a biblical person, you know, but everything I ever remember about the story of the prodigal son the father saw the son coming from far off, reached out and grabbed him, wrapped his arms around him and took him home, and they slew the fatted calf and had this magnificent feast because the son who was lost had been returned. And that's where the Bible story ends. The Bible don't tell you who does the dishes. <laughs> if you've got a hard-headed sponsor, they'll tell you who does the dishes. They said, hey, you dirty this act up, now start cleaning it up. How long does it take to clean it up? It's oh, we got a line in the book for that too. It should continue for a lifetime. And I said, that's what I bought when I came here. He said, if you want a lifetime of sobriety, it's here and it's free. But we want to tell you one thing, that just because you took this on a lifetime basis, it doesn't give you any special dispensation. You still have to live this lifetime at the same rate of speed as everybody else. 60 seconds a minute. You know? The world's record for sobriety is 24 hours. All of us can match the world's record. None of us can beat it. There's only one day here and now. Uh, he said, I can back tell Sully how this, this trip was. It's John, the only thing that kept me going. But all this time, I've been sober for over seven years, and I'm still calling God, hey, you. <laughs> or uh, to whom it may concern. Or dear dad, you know. I was afraid to use the expression God because I may, I may get his attention. He said, oh, there you are. You know? And I said, I was going to get zapped. You know? uh, and I said to Sully, I said, what am I going to find out about God? He said, when he's ready. And I walked away scratching my head. I said, you see that? This silly slob doesn't know the answer. He gives me this all-encompassing uh, in his time. I got about halfway across the floor there at the 6300 Club and the telephone rang and there was a 12-step call on a 29-year-old guy up in Hollywood. So he wrote the name, address, and telephone number on a piece of paper, handed it to me, he said, go get him. Now, they never asked you if you wanted to go on a 12-step call. They just handed it to me, said, go get him. And everybody said, okay, because we don't want to be struck drunk. <laughs> uh, I would much rather be the call E than the call er, you know. So I went up to see this guy. He was 29 years old, and I was 29 when I got here. And I figured, well, maybe he'll come up with some kind of a rapport or some kind of a of an identification. I took he and his wife to a meeting that night up in the Hollywood area, and uh, the guy that was a speaker was a, was an ex-cop. I don't know. I think at the time he was still a cop. He was a very 
profound speaker, loud mouth, boing, you know, gung-ho. And this guy got a lot out of it. And they loaned him a copy of the book. And this group that was a habit of theirs, they said, bring it back in your next meeting. Now, sometimes it may take several years for that book to get back to that meeting. He said, but you surprised how many of their books got back to that original meeting. And all right, he took this guy back home, and we're sitting talking in his apartment there, and I said, look, I just come back from Philadelphia. I've been back there for two solid weeks. I have been subsisting on cigarettes and black coffee and damn little sleep. I've been running all over southern Pennsylvania. I said, right now, I'm about to fall flat on my face. I said, now, if I don't put the body down, I'm going to collapse. If you're anything like me, you're not going to be able to sleep tonight. Don't let that worry you. Nobody ever died of insomnia. Give me 15 minutes to get home. And then call me and I'll listen to you all night long. And I got home and 15 minutes I'm expecting that phone to bring it off the walls. It wasn't. You know, or if it did, I never heard it because I hit that bed and boom, I died. I got up the next morning. I had to go back to work because it was the end of my vacation. At 10 o'clock in the morning, I got to pick up the telephone and call this guy and find out if he had survived, you know. He survived. Uh, but he was already back to the state that you're going to run into an awful lot of people. In Alcoholics Anonymous, who are comparatively new, he had reached the stage of, yeah, but. There's a lot of good things in this book, but. I don't know whether I'm alcoholic. Well, I've seen him the day before, and I didn't have any doubts in my mind. <laughs> I have an expression that says, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. But this duck was already beginning to think he's a chicken. You know, and he hadn't, he hadn't been sober 24 hours yet, you know. I said, you hang in there, Johnny. I said, I'll call you later. And I called him about 2 o'clock that afternoon. He was still back onto this routine. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And believe me, you can yeah, but yourself into a grave. Because this guy went out at 3.30 to find out whether or not he was alcoholic. He told me later, because he survived, that the very action he took should have told him he had a problem. Normsies do not go out and buy a half-gallon jug of red wine and try to chug-a-lug a half-gallon jug of red wine. That's not normal social drinking. You know, you've got to be a little bit weirdo to do that. And that's what he had done. he came out of a wine blackout, and he's trying to shove a stuffed chair through the upstairs window of his apartment in Hollywood, and he said he heard a voice. He says, Johnny, you might come out of one of these things and find out you have thrown your five-month-old son through a window. And the realization of him, he went completely berserk. He wrecked the apartment, chased his wife and kid out, and I get home from work at 6 o'clock, and she's on the phone, and she's pushing that big red panic button. She says, Joe, he wants to talk to you and nobody else. I had never seen the guy prior to the day before. But the only living soul he was even willing to talk to was me. I said, okay, I'll be there. And I went walking up those stairs in that apartment building, and he's standing on the landing, bare feet, pair of Levi's, no shirt, and he had a knife in his hand, like it looked like it was about that big. I found out later it was a bread knife, but going up that damn dark hallway, believe me, it looked like one of these two-handed swords where they dice you up coming up. And I walked up and I put my arm around his shoulder and said, Johnny, you having trouble? And you know, it was a masterpiece of understatement. He looked at me like I was nuts. He said, will you go in that apartment with me? And I said, yeah. And I, I had been talking to God, as I said, uh, in some very strange ways. I was calling him Dad. Looky here, you know. And I said, now looky here, Dad. And if I am supposed to close that door from the outside, 
Now is the time to let me know it. I really don't think this is a good time for you to goof. Alright? All I know is right down here I could feel the words says, Hey, close the door is where you're supposed to be. Because when I closed the door, this guy broke that knife off on the wall and he sat down and he collapsed. He came unglued. He needed hospitalization and he needed it fast. And I got him into the psychiatric division of the Los Angeles General Hospital at 9.30 that night without benefit of cops or doctor, and that's performing a minor miracle. The head of the hospital was coming out of the hospital at 9.30 that night as we come walking up the path, and he took one look at this guy and the nurse, get him into the bed. He's sick. We'll get the case history later. I found out later that that was the first time in four and a half years that the head of the hospital had been at the psychiatric division at 9.30 at night. You call it whatever you want. I've got my own tag for it. Uh, these people say, wasn't it a coincidence? And I believe that coincidence is a term that God uses when he wants to perform a miracle and keep it anonymous. This guy was there. I took this guy's wife back home and I started home and all of a sudden I started shaking. I started shaking like no drunk ever shook. I had a little alone clog of a car of mine over the side and I shook for 20 minutes. I weigh 137 pounds soaking wet at that time. This guy is 214 pounds. He's a bricklayer completely out of his head on wine. He's got an arm bigger than my leg. He's in a wine heat completely out of his mind. And he's got a knife in his hand. Now one of the things they taught me when I was associated with the mafia is you do not walk up to somebody like that unless you have something in your hand making you his equal. You don't walk with somebody like that unless you've got a 45 in your hand. Huh? And I realized I had done just that. I had voluntarily walked into that room and voluntarily closed the door because I knew I had the greatest power in the world running interference for me. I knew that night that God is. I still don't know who he is. I don't have to know that. Uh, God has not yet come down to me and say, Hi, I'm God. Would you care to have a talk? You know? But all I know is that knowing that, it doesn't matter what I don't know. Uh, I, I went back to Sully and I told him all about this thing and I'm just glowing. I'm bl I said, Man, John, this is the, is the most magnificent feeling I've ever had. There ain't no way I can get better than this. And he reached out and hit me on top of the head. <laughs> he said, You have been looking for God for seven solid years and you find him and the very first thing you say is this is as high as I can possibly get. Right off the bat you're trying to put a ceiling on God. What makes you think you're even capable of putting a ceiling on God? This is as high as you have been up till now. He said, but you keep doing the things that you've been doing in the manner in which you've been doing. He said, and I will guarantee you there are going to be more and more heights of elation. He says, there's not going to be all peaches and cream, but there are going to be some pines you're going to say, wow. And I believe this is the only word that fully expresses what does the program of Alcoholics Anonymous mean to us. Wow, it works. No? On Easter Sunday, it used to be a tradition in the Los Angeles area for Chuck C. to, to conduct what they referred to as the Easter Sunday morning spiritual meeting and I went to this meeting this Sunday morning and I mean he was really on uh, he was on a spiritual high where you, could, you know you could practically float across the room after that meeting I was so high 
I floated over to Sully and says, John, this is as high as I can possibly get. He says, there you go again. <laughs> and I can only tell you this, that that night I had the privilege of leading the meeting at my home group, which was the motion picture group. Now, in order to be a member of the motion picture group, you had to be in the motion picture industry or be behind the scenes or have seen a motion picture or be a drunk, you know? So I qualified in a couple of areas. But I used to go to the motion picture group because that's where all the good-looking girls were. That's where all the sobriety was. That's where all the winners were, you know? And uh, that night, I was supposed to leave that meeting. But now that afternoon, when I walked out of the 6300 Club, was as high emotionally as I had ever been. That night when I walked out of the motion picture group, that afternoon, I was comparatively depressed. I like that one, huh? You didn't get this, this great speaker that I had was a guy who had always stressed, this is how it works for me. And I wanted all these 500 people to hear this great message from this guy. But you didn't get to say who this fill-in speaker was. You know, the guy or gal who settles in there for the first five minutes or so until everybody gets their ashtrays in place. There was a little gal by the name of Virginia Fuller who has since passed away, God rest her. And Polly asked Virginia if she would talk for about five minutes. And she did. And I have to this day no idea what my great speaker had to say. Because she finished her talk by saying it was battered and scarred. And the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste his time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good people, he cried. Who starts his bidding for me? One dollar, one dollar. Do I hear two? Two dollars. Who makes it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three. But no, from the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow. Wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. The music ceased. The auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What now am I bid for this old violin? As he held it up with his bow. One thousand? One thousand. Do I hear two? Two thousand. Who makes it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going, gone, said he. The audience cheered. Some of them cried, we don't quite understand. What change is worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune, all battered with bourbon and gin, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game. He travels on, going once, going twice, He's going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of the soul, the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. God bless you.